You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome in. I am Kenny Ortiz coming at you from the beautiful metropolis of Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for listening today. This is episode 194 of Theology for the Rest of Us, and I am uh, super stoked to dive into uh, the topic at hand today. Uh, The topic I'm going to address is about the Mountain Transfiguration, or the event that is often referred to as the Transfiguration of Jesus. And, And this was inspired by two separate emails that I got from uh, from regular listeners, as uh, some of you who've been tracking with me uh, in the last episode, in episode 193, I made mention of the fact that I've got a queue of uh, of more than 60 questions that um, that have come in from regular listeners. So I'm going to be just chipping away at that and answering all sorts of great questions that have come in. And so uh, in the last few months, I've gotten two separate emails from two separate listeners uh, about the about the transfiguration. The first one uh, comes from a guy named Ben. Uh, ben sent, a, sent me a really long email, very encouraging, really appreciate it, and sort of in the middle of it asked a few questions. And one of the questions he said, he asked is, um, why is it that Moses and Elijah were the ones that were selected to be alongside of Jesus? Is there any uh, significance of those two prophets being selected above the other ones of the Old Testament? Great, great question uh, from Ben. And then I got an email uh, in December from a regular listener named Daniel. And Daniel says this. He says, just got listening to episode 156. Question arose. Uh, He says, how does Moses and Elijah come back to earth when in Luke 16, 26, it talks about uh, a chasm that cannot be crossed? Is this chasm just between heaven and hell and earth and hell? Is it not also between earth and heaven? These are some really, really great questions and some good thoughts, so I I figured I'd kind of push these two together and kind of just cover the event, uh, the topic of the mountain transfiguration or the the event uh, where Jesus is transfigured and kind of of hit on a few different ideas related to this event and then answer uh, both Ben and Daniel's questions. If you are not familiar with the event that we often refer to as the transfiguration of Jesus... Um, this is a, a really unique event in the life of Jesus where he kind of goes up this mountainside with just three of his disciples. He doesn't take all 12 of them. Um, he just takes three of them up on this mountain and and he is somehow transfigured right before their very eyes. He he goes from being looking like a regular you know Jewish human um, to his face being transformed to something much more radiant, much more glorious. Uh, the New Testament doesn't give us a very clear picture as to what they were seeing, uh, but but you get the you get the picture that there's these bright rays of light that are shining off of him, and there's just this this sense of glory that's coming off of Jesus that he doesn't look human anymore, but he looks much more you know that he, that he looks like a, like a heavenly divine uh, a being, and, and he is radiating in such a way that it becomes very clear uh, to the three disciples that go up with Jesus. That, that he is not just a regular human, that there, there is something unique uh, about Jesus. Now, up to this point, they had traveled to Jesus for, for, for quite some time, and so they knew that Jesus was, was certainly unique, um, not just another good rabbi. He wasn't just another good prophet. He was something much grander than that. Um, but this is a unique experience and a unique event where, where uh, three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, 
um, have the opportunity to experience the glory and the divinity of Christ in a way that no one up to that point ha- had experienced. Um, the this event is uh, recorded or, or, or documented in the three synoptic gospels. So it's recorded in Matthew 17, uh, Mark 9, Luke uh, Luke 9. Uh, the apostle Peter also refers to it in his second epistle, the first chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1. And then there are some theologians that believe that the apostle John is actually alluding to this event in the first chapter in John uh, 1.14. Not 100% sure uh, that I agree with that, uh, but it's certainly a possibility. If you're not familiar with, uh, with the story, let me read to you from Matthew 17. It says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but if if my rabbi and mentor and one of my best friends, this guy I had been following for years, takes me up a mountainside and he somehow transforms okay, into this bright, radiant light. And then there's a cloud that comes over and, and, and his thunderous voice says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. If I had experienced that, I would be freaking out. And that seemingly is exactly what Peter, John, and James do here. They, they fall to their face and they're, they're terrified and they, they can't believe what's going on. And Jesus reaches out and touches them and says, hey, don't be afraid. And they look up and everything's back to normal. And Jesus looks like a regular dude again. Um, and one of the unique elements of this is Moses and Elijah. Um, now, the significance, I think, of Moses and Elijah is the fact that these are two of the most respected prophets of the Old Testament. There were dozens of of leaders and judges and prophets throughout the course of the Old Testament um, that God used in profound ways uh, to do great things for, for his people and for the kingdom of God and ultimately for the ushering in of the Messiah. However, among all of these stood a few kind of different from the crowd. And there is no doubt that both Moses and Elijah are the two that sort of stand out. Um, Moses is the one that leads them, you know, out of is uh, out of Egypt and eventually, you know, into the wilderness and eventually ushers in the era where they would enter into the promised land. Even, even though Moses himself didn't lead them into the promised land, he was the leader that led them out of Egypt and then eventually made it possible for them to reach into the promised land. This was a big, big deal. Moses writes, uh, he writes the first five books of the Bible. He, he is the, he is the one that God um, uses as the primary instrument to create this new nation, uh, this country, this Jewish country, uh, uh, Israel. Um, 
Moses is the one that gives them the law, and, and then after Moses passes on, it is it is referred to as the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, or the, the law that Moses gave us. Um, Moses spoke on behalf of God with authority. Moses was revered above all others. You look through the, through the New Testament over and over again, um, Moses is respected and revered in a way that no other prophet and no other leader of, of the people of God was ever respected and revered. Uh, Moses, you know, did many great things. And so for Moses to be the one there that's talking with Jesus and Moses to be the one that is basically affirming that Jesus is in greater than himself is a big, big deal. If you're a Jewish person in this context, you recognize that Moses was awesome. But in this moment, you realize that even Moses is yielding to Jesus. When the voice comes over, it doesn't say, Moses is the one in whom I'm well pleased. This is this is my son. The voice is referring to Jesus. And the voice is God the Father speaking to God the Son. This is the Father in heaven speaking to uh, spe- speaking to everyone there about who Jesus is. So God the Father is speaking to Moses. He's speaking to Elijah. He's speaking to Peter, John, and James. And God the Father is making it clear that Jesus is the one in whom I am well pleased. It's all about him. He's the most important character in this story, not Moses. This is a big deal. For, for Peter, John, and James, who had grew up in this Jewish culture that respected and revered and hailed Moses so much, to see that Moses is the one that's yielding to Jesus and that in front of Moses, God is making it clear that Jesus is the most important character of the story. Jesus is the most important person in this narrative is a big, big deal. Moses takes a back seat to Jesus because Moses was one of the forerunners to make way for the Messiah. Moses understood that he wasn't the most important person, that he was pointing to someone much more important than himself. That was Jesus. This is a huge deal. And I believe that's probably the primary reason why God selected Moses to be there on the Mount of Transfiguration that day. Now, I think the reason why Elijah was selected is because Elijah never actually died a human death. He was just taken up. Some people would say he was raptured up. Uh, We'll cover that in a different episode. Um, But basically, Elijah had lived his life and eventually God comes down and grabs him and pulls him out and he kind of just gets taken up into the sky and we never see him again. Um, and, And there's a lot of different Specu- a lot of different people speculating on, on what happened to Elijah in that moment. Um, but basically, Elijah was living, you know, in in the times of the Old Testament. God scoops him up out of time and brings him into eternity. And then at some point, puts him here on the Mount of Transfiguration alongside of Jesus. There are now, in the first century, there were many people who believed that Elijah would be reincarnated. Uh, they didn't necessarily call it that, but it's in essence, they believed that the spirit of, of Elijah would come back or that Elijah would appear on the scene again. He had never died and then he would come to planet Earth. That that was the belief of some Jewish people in the first century. So sometimes people in the first century believed that when they, when they saw a great rabbi like a Jesus, they would say, oh, are you Elijah? Are you basically the 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 rebirth of Elijah? Are you the one that, are you a different human with the spirit of Elijah upon you or within you? That was a common belief. Now, it's a flawed belief and, and there's a lot of problems with that theology, but there, it was a, a prominent belief amongst certain Jewish leadership and Jewish people um, in the first century BC and then into the first century. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, there's a segment of people saying, Man, this is Elijah who's come back to us, right? He's been, it's either, it's either a different person with the spirit of Elijah upon him, or it's Elijah that's been rebirth, come, come to us, right? 
And I think the reason why God selects Elijah to be alongside Jesus that day on the mount is to make the point is that, no, no, Jesus is not a reincarnation of Elijah. No, no, Jesus doesn't have the spirit of the human prophet Elijah upon him. Jesus has a much greater spirit upon him. It's not the spirit or soul of Elijah. It's the spirit and soul of the Holy Spirit. It's the divine spirit. The spirit of God himself is is communing perfectly within Christ, within the man Jesus, and is upon him. The, The spirit that is upon Jesus is not the spirit of Elijah. It's the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the spirit which created all things and holds all things together. There's something much grander at in play here. And so so when you when you have Elijah and Moses alongside of Jesus here at the event of transfiguration, Peter, John, and James are realizing they see Jesus as a human, and then all of a sudden he's transformed into something that doesn't even look human, that's something just beautiful and radiant and glorious and bright like the sun, and it's incredible. And they realize Jesus is divine. And then Moses shows up, the one that that we revere, that we respect, the one that we love and cherish and treasure his words. He is taking a backseat to Jesus. And Elijah, the one that we thought would come to rescue us, the one we thought would be rebirthed, he is showing he is here. He's not being rebirthed. Jesus is not him because they're they're two separate persons. We can see them separate right here. And Elijah, Elijah is, is not the one that's upon Jesus. It's something grander. And even Elijah is taking a back seat. He is secondary and they are talking with Jesus and making it very clear that they acknowledge that he is the Messiah. You see, in the Old Testament, you had lots of great prophets, lots of doing great things, and they were awesome in so many ways. God used them profoundly, and I'm so thankful for them. But all of them pale in comparison in their level of importance when it comes to their comparison to Christ. There is no one more radiant, more beautiful, more awesome, more glorious, no one more powerful, no one more majestic, no one worthy of our worship and praise the way Jesus Christ is worthy of our praise. All of the great prophets of old, they take a backseat to Jesus. Even the two most revered take a backseat to Christ, Jesus, the King of Kings. Now, to answer Daniel's question about how how was Moses and Elijah able to get there if there's a chasm between uh, heaven and earth, he's alluding to uh, Luke chapter 16. If you're not familiar, in Luke 16, uh, Luke is writing about this narrative that Jesus tells you about the the rich man and Lazarus. And, ba- and Lazarus. And uh, basically, uh, Lazarus is on one side. He's with Abraham in this place that people often refer to as Abraham's bosom. He's at Abraham's side. He's in the afterlife. And then uh, the rich man is in is in Hades. Um, and then there's this chasm. And, and you know, the, the, the rich man who's in Hades can't go to Abraham's uh, bosom, his side. And, and likewise, people who, who are with Abraham can't go over to the other side. Um, and so lots of people have said, have, have led, who said, this is basically, you know, heaven and hell, that there's this chasm or this gulf between uh, between heaven and hell. People who are in heaven can't get to hell. People who are in hell can't get to heaven. Um, that's at least the, uh, that's kind of the, the thought process there. When I read through Luke 16, um, I'm not so sure this is referring to heaven and hell per se, and I'm not sure this is a literal event. I, I don't know that this is, this is taught, this is, I don't think Jesus is te- telling the story meant to be literal. I don't think Jesus is telling the story for us to build our doctrine about heaven and hell or how heaven and hell function. I don't, I don't think that's the purpose of the story. Um, I think it's really important when we read the script, we read the scripture that we don't read it literally, 
but we read it literarily. And that means that we examine the style of literature, the intent and the purpose of that particular passage, and we try to pull out from it, what's the overarching point? Why does this passage exist? Or why was this passage written? And, and I think, and, and we have to understand, in how was it written? What was the style in which it was written? And I think we need to take those things into account. And as we take those things into account, I'm not 100% sure that that this is a literal event speaking about heaven and hell. I don't, I don't think we're designed to to build our doctrine. So, so Daniel, I just want to encourage you and anyone else out there, just be cautious with with not necessarily building strong doctrines of a particular or a particular elements of a heaven and hell based on these sorts of parables or these sorts of narratives. Now, let's say for let's just take for a moment. Let's say this is indeed a literal, uh, a, a literal uh, picture of heaven and hell. That that there is a, a place in heaven that we can look and see hell. There's a place in hell where they can look and see into heaven. Like and let, let's say for example that there is this wide gap, this wide canyon that separates the two, but that somehow they can still see into one another and still have a conversation. Let's just say for, for argument's sake that that still exists. Um, what I think Jesus is saying here is that individual people who are in hell, they cannot pass into heaven on their own accord. They, like, they can't get themselves into heaven and vice versa. People who are in heaven can't get themselves into hell. Uh, I think that maybe the, the if we're going to read this passage literally, I think the, the, the lesson we learn here is that Whatever state of eternity we are in, that is a permanent state. If you end up in heaven, um, then you're there forever. It's a permanent state. And if you're in hell, then that's a, a, a permanent state. I think that would be a more accurate lesson to take away from this passage. Now, again, I do not read this passage uh, literally, I read it literarily. I think there's some other things in play. I promise in the future, we're going to do a whole series on hell and heaven and the afterlife. We're going to do a whole series on that. And I will come back to this um, again and kind of give you some of my, some of my additional thoughts on this. Um, but I think, it, I think it's sufficient to say that, um, that individual people can't get themselves in and out of the in particular place, but it doesn't necessarily mean that God can't transpose that, right? Because Jesus was in heaven and he came to planet earth, right? Um, people people who had died and had gone into the afterlife and then Jesus rose them, brought them back from the dead. You know, uh, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, and so I think uh, I think if we read this passage to say, well, there's a chasm between heaven and between earth, Moses and Elijah can't can't jump the chasm. Well, Moses and Elijah by themselves, it is true. They can't jump over that chasm. They don't have that power within them. But God clearly does have the power to transport someone over that chasm. Now, if you read through Luke 16, there's nothing in that passage that says that it's impossible for God to have them jump the chasm. It just makes it clear that humans can't do it. Humans can't do it of themselves. It needs God to reach in and do it on their behalf. And clearly, that's what, that's what God did. God grabbed Moses and he grabbed Elijah and he he took them off of this, you know, out of their eternal spot and he brought them to this mountain and 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 there they appeared next to Jesus. Um, in addition to that, I don't know that it was completely physical. I wonder, um, you know, like, um, you know, like <laughs> I just watched this Netflix series, Stranger Things, a few months ago, where there's like this, you know, this gate between the dimensions, right? That people can travel now because there's the gateway was opened. Um, I wonder if it was something like that. I know that's kind of weird <laughs> to think about, but I wonder if it was sort of this, that God kind of ripped a hole in the space-time continuum and that Moses and Elijah were able to walk 
from their eternal state right into the spot on the mountain. And it was glorious and it was radiant because there was something supernatural happening there. And so I guess I, I would say to Daniel, to anyone who kind of is thinking about similar things, uh, that yes, that there seems to be in Luke 16 this chasm between between people who have been condemned and people who have been forgiven, there's a, there's a separation between them and heaven, um, and they can't get themselves out of that state. But it doesn't. There's nothing in that passage that would lead me to believe to say that God can't pull people from one state to another. And in fact, that the greatest evidence of that is that Jesus was in eternity. He was in heaven, and he stepped out of the bounds of eternity and into. The, the steps or into the bounds of time, right? He went from overseeing the universe to limiting himself to a little piece of land called Nazareth. He went from overseeing all of the galaxies to limiting himself to a human body. Um, to be, He went from being the, the creator and sustainer of all things to being dependent on a human mother, right? So God's able to transport himself and believe me to believe that God is able to transport other peoples. And so it seems like that's what he did with Moses and Elijah. He takes these two people from whatever eternal state they were in, and he transports them to this mountain where Jesus is at. Jesus is transformed. He's transfigured into this incredibly majestic, beautiful, bright, shining thing. We can't even describe it. Peter, John, and James, they experience this. They recognize that, that, that the prophets of old that they take a backseat to Jesus. Jesus is incredible. He's awesome. They fall down on their face, terrified. God the Father yells, or not yells, he speaks down um, with, with love and authority. This is my son. I'm pleased with him. He is my beloved. I treasure him. I am thankful for him. I love him. Listen to what he says. He is the savior. Like That's what God says. This incredible, powerful moment takes place. The, 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 the disciples are, are freaked out of their minds. They fall on their, face, their faces. And then instantly Jesus puts their hand on their shoulders and just says, hey, they look up and it's all kind of back to normal. And they walk down the mountain. And then Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Don't tell anyone about this event until after I've resurrected. And I think there's a whole other reasons why Jesus did that. Again, a future episode. But Jesus makes clear, I'm going to raise from the dead. I'm going to prove that I am God. I am who I say I am. I have the power to forgive sin. I have the power to reconcile humans unto God. I am the Messiah, the Christ. And the Old Testament prophets, they take a backseat to me because I am the one that they prophesied about many centuries ago. This is a powerful moment. And the disciples eventually write it down and they document it in, you know, in the scriptures. And they talk about it in the scriptures. And this is a moment we point to saying, Jesus is who he says he was. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the creator. He's the God man. And he deserves to be worshiped and honored forever. Hey, hope this episode has been helpful and insightful. Shout out to Daniel and to Ben. Thank you so much for uh, your questions. Keep those questions coming. Anyone listening to this, if you have a question or a topic that you want me to address on a future episode of the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to shoot me an email. The best address is heyortiz at theologyfortherestofus.com. That's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at theologyfortherestofus.com. Also, you connect with me on Twitter if you like. I love the tweet. My Twitter handle is Kenneth Ortiz. That's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-O-R-T-I-Z. To ensure you never miss an episode of the podcast, make sure you're subscribed to iTunes or your favorite podcast player. 
that'll guarantee that every episode gets delivered directly to your device. Also, if you're loving the podcast or it's been helpful to you, please head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Those reviews are a big, big help to the show. Thanks again for listening. I'm Kenny Ortiz, and this has been Theology for the Rest of Us.